Deuteronomy chapter 8. And starting at verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. Thank you, Ryan. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at this scripture that was delivered so many years ago by the mouth of Moses, your servant, I pray that we would today, in another part of the world, in another time, with different cultural customs, that we would hear you speaking to us, that you would challenge us and comfort us, because we, like Israel, are in the wilderness waiting, wanting to go into the land that you have promised, a good land flowing with milk and honey. I pray that you would glorify yourself. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and speak through me for the good of this church. I pray that you would minister to each individual here and everyone who might listen to this sermon uniquely by the miracle of the mediation of your spirit, by your word. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I believe this is the last sermon in this series uh, as we have been looking at the Torah and how the Torah really shares with us and gives us the pattern of the gospel. If you want to understand the gospel, look no further than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Last week, we took a, a big picture view of these five books, and within that big picture view, we saw that Israel's experience in the wilderness is parallel to our experience in the Christian life. We were all born in exile from God. We were all born as slaves to sin. But God, in his great mercy, delivered us by a Passover, which is the blood of the Lamb, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That when we applied the blood of the Lord Jesus to our lives by faith, he delivers us from slavery. He promises that his wrath and judgment will pass over us. And he begins us on a journey toward the promised land. For Israel, the promised land was this little parcel of land in the Middle East where modern-day Israel exists. For us, though, the promised land is much more than this. It's the whole earth, and not just the whole earth, but the whole universe, a new creation that God will give to us. 
having been delivered from their slavery, they passed through the waters of baptism in the Red Sea. They entered into covenant with God. They learned what it meant to worship, and then they went into the wilderness. Likewise, we're in the new covenant with God through the blood of Christ. He has shown us what is required of us for worship. And now, we are in the wilderness which makes the book of Numbers and aspects of Moses' sermons in the book of Deuteronomy extremely important for us as Christians. If we want to understand what God requires of us, if we want to understand the promises that he has given to us, if we want to uh, comprehend the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of God's love for us, we should read the book of Numbers. We should read the book of Deuteronomy and put it into its proper place passage that was read for us today is from Deuteronomy 8. And and if you were listening carefully, you might recognize uh, one of the lines in in that scripture passage. That is what Jesus quoted back to Satan when he was being tested. Where? In the wilderness. So this motif of the wilderness is really important. And like Christ, when we meet testing and trials of various kinds, we too should come back to Deuteronomy 8. In other wilderness passages. And remember that man does not live by bread alone. Life is not all about just being comfortable. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this passage we learn that God had a purpose for bringing his people into the wilderness. God has a purpose for your life and my life and our life together. And contrary to what prosperity preachers will tell you, it's not to make us rich. It's not to guarantee health. It's not to guarantee fame or power. Quite the opposite. The Christian life, much like Israel's experience in the wilderness, prepares us to receive an inheritance from God, which is the new creation. Moses is very clear. God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. He has led you that he might test you to know what is in your heart. Then down further it says, like a father, the Lord disciplines you. Who wants to be humbled? Who wants to be tested? If you've ever been in school, I mean, going to school is one thing. Having to write the exam is something entirely different. Who likes that? Who wants to be disciplined? Like a loving father, the Lord knows what is in our good and for our best interest. And he is preparing us by humbling us, testing us, and disciplining us. Just a little aside, a pastoral aside. I want to give you a glimpse into the heart of the preacher this morning. This is a very difficult sermon to give. Because I know that some of you are just hanging on by a thread. The last thing you need to hear is that God wants to humble you. I've been humbled, you say. The last thing that you need to hear is that God wants to test you. I don't know that I can take any more testing, you say. And discipline, perhaps you have bad experiences of unholy discipline by a less than perfect father. I'm aware of these things. 
And so I want you to know that the last thing that I want is for anyone who feels beaten down right now, anyone who feels that they're just barely getting by, their head is, is just above water and, and they almost feel like they are sinking, I want you to know that perhaps there's not more coming Perhaps you're in the midst of the very things that we're talking about. And, and so what I want you to hear is a great encouragement and a comfort that these things, as hard as they are, is, they're not maybe going to get worse, but God is going to use them for good. But others of you are living high in life right now. There's not much difficulty. You're very comfortable. And right now, you're not really feeling beaten down at all, but you're reaching for more and more and more. And for you, perhaps God wants to humble you. Perhaps God is going to say, you need to be tested. You need to be disciplined. And for you, I, with the very same words coming from my mouth, I want you to hear that, that life is not about your comfort and your well-being, your prestige, your fame, your power. Life is not about now. And so it will require a miracle of God's Spirit to take the same words from my mouth to minister to each one of you according to your unique need. Whether you're living high or you're brought low, tune into the whole Word of God this morning. Let's take a flyby of the book of Numbers. I would commend this book to you this summer. Read the book of Numbers. Get through the first census and persevere through the last census. Ask yourself, why are there two censuses in this book? But don't miss the big point that the life of Israel in the wilderness is about the Christian life. What can God say to you? I don't have time to read the book of Numbers to you this morning, though I would like to. But let's just big picture fly by, see what God's people went through in the book of Numbers. I want to begin in Numbers 11, and I'll just cite the chapters. You can go back and read them at another time. Uh, much like in the book of Exodus, we get into the book of Numbers, and the people are complaining. Here God, God had taken them from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them miraculously through the Red Sea. He had been provided for them, and they're complaining about their misfortunes. I just hate it here in the wilderness. It is so boring and hard, and I don't have good things to eat. And I, I, I wish I was back in slavery. And, and God was angry with the people. And God did not burn up the, the heart of the rebellion, but as a warning shot across the bow, he, he allowed these fires to, to blaze at the outskirts of the camp. Some people died. We don't know what the source of that fire was, but I know that they were wandering around in the wilderness. It could have just been the heat of the sun against dry canvas that caused fire to burn, and people died. But what the Bible says is this was God's anger kindled against his people. This was a warning. Stop your complaining. Do you not know what I have done for you? Do you not know where we are going? Stop your grumbling against me. In the very same chapter, even after these fires, the people grumbled more about their food. Oh, I wish we had something delicious to eat. All we have is this manna, and it's, it's not delicious. It's not satisfying. We have to go out and collect it. It's work. 
So God gives them all kinds of quail, and he says, here's some meat, and eat, eat, eat. And there was so much quail, and as the people, without giving thanks to God for giving them quail, they took the quail, they cooked it, and they put it between their teeth, ungrateful. And God struck many of them dead because they weren't thankful. They grumbled, they took, they ate. They did not thank the Lord for his provision. Is that ever like us? Do we complain? Do we ever want to go back to the life of slavery? That is the life of sin. Oh, the pleasures of sin are delicious, aren't they? And yet we've been delivered from that slavery. And now we just have this plain, boring manna to eat. What is the manna that we eat? Jesus says, I am the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. Eat and be satisfied. Oh, to our shame, is Jesus not enough for us? that we want more, more, more. And then God lavishes us with all kinds of things in our lives. Beautiful houses, nice backyards, incomes that allow us to go on vacation, to buy cars and clothes and flat screen TVs and boats. Still not enough. We don't give thanks to God. We're not satisfied with the manna which is Christ. He gives us more and still we want more. Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron, Moses' own brother and sister, complained about Moses, saying, he should not be the sole leader of these people. Look at who he has taken to himself for a wife. She's a Cushite. She's not one of us. Are we not also God's people? Has God not also spoken through us? And God disciplined Miriam and Aaron severely. And Miriam was struck with leprosy. God hates it when we shout down the leaders that he has assigned to lead his people. And oh, how we love to do that, don't we? Whether it's in our families, in our churches, in our cities, in our province, in our country. Oh, we hate our leaders. Maybe we don't hate them personally, but we hate to submit. God struck Miriam with leprosy and she became unclean. The significance of that is hard to miss in the Torah, which meant God cut her off from worship. You were struck with leprosy. You had to go outside of the camp. You were not permitted to approach God. She wanted to lead God's people to God. And God struck her with leprosy, which says, you're not leading anyone anywhere. Now God was merciful with her, listened to the prayers of intercession, and healed her of her leprosy. But the point was made. Miriam, I want you to submit to your brother Follow his leadership, for I have chosen him to lead my people. Numbers 13 and 14. 
God, uh, Moses sent spies into the land to spy out the land. The spies came back, and 10 out of the 12 incited the people to disbelieve God's promises. said, the people are too strong. Their cities are too fortified. There are too many for us. It is a good land. I wish we could take it, but we can't. We can't. We can't take the land. God can't give it to us. And so they incited the people to faithlessness, saying that God was not strong enough, able enough, faithful enough to give the people what he had promised to give them. So God honored their choice. And a whole generation died in the wilderness. A trip that should have taken two weeks. It took them 40 years. God honored their choice to be faithless. More than that, the ten spies that had incited the people to rebellion against God, he struck them down immediately with a plague. And then God did not give the people victory in battle for a time. Because they changed their mind and they said, oh no, we'll go, we'll take the land, we'll go in, we'll go in. And they went to, to go into battle and God taught them, unless I go before you in battle, you will lose every battle. Every battle belongs to me. There are so many people in the church in Canada today who will not make it into the new creation. They will not receive an inheritance. They will come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of their days. And Jesus will look at them and he will say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Why? Because deep down they didn't believe that God could raise them from the dead. Deep down they did not believe that God could redeem this universe and create it in glory and power. They did not believe that God would take heaven, his throne room, and the fullness of his presence and put it on earth to dwell with us forever. They did not believe those promises. And so they will not enter into the promised land, much like so many Israelites who were delivered from Egypt did not make it into the promised land. Of 600,000 men, which is about 2 million people, how many people made it into the promised land of that generation? Two. That is a frightening statistic. So how many of us will make it? I want you to know something that keeps me up at night for good and for bad. Much more important to me than a church of a thousand people is that all of us will make it safely into the promised land. Give me ten people, God, that I can shepherd through the wilderness into the promised land. So I plead with you, and Blair and Glenn, together with me, plead with you, follow us through the wilderness so that we can all make it safely. I want that day to come when South Shore is gathered on the other bank of the Jordan River in the new creation, and we take a census and you're all there. So I would rather have a small church filled with people who don't fall in the wilderness than a big church filled with people who won't make it 
for faithlessness. Numbers 15, there was a man who broke the Sabbath. So Moses inquired to the Lord, what should we do? And the Lord said, stone him to death. So they did. Numbers 16, Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and said, what makes these people so special? Much like Miriam and Aaron previously, are we not all priests? Are we not all God's children? Are we not all God's people? What makes you so special that only you can approach the tent of meeting? And so God caused the earth to open and swallow them up, and he took them down by the hundreds and the thousands. And 250 followers of Korah were before the the tent of meeting with censers in their hands ready, ready to offer fire of worship to the Lord. And fire came out from the tent and consumed the 250 who presumed upon themselves to lead the people in worship. God sent a plague in addition to the earthquake swallowed up people in the fire from the tent of meeting. He sent a plague and on that day 14,700 people died because they were empathetic with the insubordination of Korah and his rebellion. Number 17. The people together not learning from Miriam's leprosy or Korah's rebellion said, what makes your brother fit to serve as our high priest? That's nepotism. Maybe Moses, God has chosen you, but why did you choose your brother? What makes Aaron so special to be the first high priest? We reject him as our high priest. We want the leader of our clan and our tribe to be the high priest. So what God says, well, okay, every tribe, choose a man. Every man that has chosen, take your staff, put it in the tent of meeting, and the stick that bears fruit, that is the man that I have chosen to be my high priest. In the morning, they took their staffs out, and everyone had their names on it, and Aaron's staff had budded this beautiful almond branch and blossom. And God said, that is my man. I have chosen him. And to prove it, I have brought life out of dead wood. And this is really pointing forward, pointing forward to Jesus Christ. What makes Jesus so special? Every prophet, every religion leads to the same place, doesn't it? How can you Christians claim that Jesus is the only one? Doesn't Muhammad get us there? Doesn't uh, Buddha get us there? Doesn't uh, Confucius get us there? Aren't these all just different paths up the mountain to the same destination, different roads, same place? No. Because all of those other prophets, all of those other leaders died and stayed dead. But we have an almond branch on our leader. From the dead body of Christ came forth life. Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead. And God said, that's my son. He is the high priest, he and no other. Numbers 20. People grumbled against God about their thirst. God instructed Moses to speak to the rock for water. 
Moses was getting annoyed and frustrated with the people. And oh, how I can relate. Can you? Man, are we seriously complaining about food and water again? So Moses gets mad. He says, you are a stubborn people. He takes his staff and he nails the rock twice with his staff. And God in his mercy causes water to come out. God says to Moses, because you've done this, because you got angry with the people, you're not going into the promised land either. You're every bit as sinful as they are. This is really instructive for leaders over God's church. It's not going to be easy. If, if the church was filled with dogs, that would be easy. But the church is filled with sheep. Not so easy. Dogs, oh, they want to please you. Sheep, you've got to Bring them together constantly. What are you doing over there? Come back over here. What? Get back over here. Dogs, they just follow you. But the church is filled with sheep. But woe to the leader who gets frustrated with the flock and strikes the rock. Numbers 21. The people became impatient on the way. And they spoke again against God and Moses. We don't even know what they said. It's as if Moses is getting tired of talking about all the times the people grumbled. Again, they just spoke against God. They spoke against Moses. And so what did God do? He sent poisonous snakes into the camp to kill the people. Moses prayed for the people and God says, well, put a bronze snake up on the staff. And if people get bit because they were stung by the snake, bit by the snake, look to the bronze serpent and they'll be healed. Picture of the gospel. We grumble against God, we sin, we die, but if we look to Christ and see in Christ the very thing that is killing us, our sin, we will be healed. Numbers 25. The people worship the gods of Moab. Can you believe that? They worship other gods. And they participated in all kinds of sexual immorality and orgies with Moabite women. So 24,000 people were killed by a plague in a single day. The people, you know, we can look on them in the wilderness and say, wow, Israel, you just didn't learn. You really were stiff-necked people. Are we? God spent 40 years to humble, test, and discipline his people in the wilderness. He humbled them. How? Through hunger and thirst. He, he showed them, unless I feed you, unless I give you water, look around. You're in the desert. There's nothing for you. Humble yourself before me. Recognize you are not self-sufficient. Unless I give you breath, you will die. Unless I give you food, you will die. Unless I give you water, you will die. They were totally dependent on God for survival in the wilderness. The hard thing about our life in our wilderness is it is so easy to forget how dependent we are because I can go to the grocery store and get food. I can turn on my tap and get water. I have not the nicest clothes, but I have enough to keep me clothed. I have a roof over my head. I can look after myself. I, 
How many of us have already set aside millions of dollars for retirement? How many of us have million-dollar homes that if things go bad, we can sell them and look after ourselves? We don't need God. It's so hard to be humble when you have more than you need. And one of the great challenges for a Western Christian is to remember that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. One day, all these things will be gone. All of them. Where's your hope? The people were tested. Why did God command Moses to send spies into the land? He had already told them, this is a good land, and I'm going to give it to you. It was a test. Go in. Come back. All right, let's go into the land. Well, hold on a minute. We've been there. We've seen the people. They're too big. They're too strong. They're too many. It was a test, a test of faith. They were tested for supplies. How many times did they complain about uh, their food and their drink? God has promised to look after you. Collect the manna. When you're thirsty, ask for a glass of water. Their faith was tested regarding God's promises. But instead of passing the test, they tested God in their unbelief. And they were disciplined. The book of Numbers, if it tells us nothing else, it tells us that they were severely disciplined. When they refused to be humbled, when they refused to, to be tested or to, to succeed in their testing, when they were faithless in the face of testing, then God disciplined them severely. In the moment, in the immediate failure, hundreds and thousands of people died. Over the course of 40 years, everybody died. Miriam died, Aaron died, Moses died. All of the people that had seen the, the pillar of fire and the cloud of God's glory died. They fell in the wilderness. That was severe discipline for God's people and their children. After they came of age, they went into the land, and God didn't take many chances with them. He says, I'm going to take you in there, but Deuteronomy 9, uh, I, I'm not even going to test you on this. Don't for a moment think that you are righteous enough to go into the land. I said this last week. You're not. You've, you failed the test, but I am gracious, and I'm going to take you in there. The most important thing for us to recognize is we're going to fail more than we succeed. Can we, can we humble ourselves and look to Christ who in the wilderness for 40 days did not fail? Can we say, Jesus, I, I'm going to fail. I have failed. I will fail. I'm not as humble as I should be. I don't depend on you as I ought. In your discipline, I, I buck against it. But Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus succeeded where I am failing. And when he was tested in the wilderness uh, for 40 days, and when he was tested over the course of his 33 years, and when he was tested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he was tested on the cross, and when he humbled himself by becoming a man, and when he humbled himself to the point of death, could you take his life for mine? Please. Now what if we went out into the world and 
this sermon was our evangelism. So we told people, you want to know what the Christian life is all about? It's about being humbled. It's about being tested. It's about being disciplined. I don't know. It would take an act of God for people to be beaten down our door to get in here. But at some point, that's the very thing that every one of us and everyone in the world needs to hear. Because those three things, humility, trials, and discipline, are the gateway to eternal life. You might say, well, surely that's not what the Christian life is all about. That's Israel. That's Jesus. That's not me. That's exactly, if you read through the New Testament, that these are three themes that, that go over and over again in the New Testament. The Christian life is about being humbled. 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, just listen, all of you, with humility. Be humble toward one another. Why? Because the whole Bible is teaching us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You know, the people in the wilderness, if they had just been humble, if they had stepped back, not to think about their immediate interests and their immediate uh, uh, appetites and, and what they didn't like about their present circumstances, if they could have just stepped back and said, it's not about me in this moment, it's about what God is doing in the bigger picture. I was a slave, and I'm going into the promised land. So whatever in between those two seems right to him, it's right for me. Oh God, I am humbled. I don't deserve this but I'll walk with you. I will walk with you. Humble me. Help me to be satisfied with manna. Translation, help me to be satisfied with Christ. Uh, this is the challenge. Am I satisfied with Christ? Or do I require Jesus plus a good marriage? Jesus plus a good income. Jesus plus a secure retirement. Jesus plus good health. Jesus plus a, 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 a vacation home. Jesus plus a smartphone, a fast car. Fill in the blank. Can we be satisfied? With Christ? Is He enough? If God took everything out of your life, including your health, if He asked you to walk the road of Job, would you be satisfied with Christ? Because He is the manna that comes down from heaven that the people were not satisfied with. Well, surely God doesn't test us. Would God do that? 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. And let endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial when tested, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's from James 1, 3 to 4 and 12. Trials, testing. Uh, maybe it's uh, health. Maybe it's uh, financial issues. Maybe it's relational difficulties. Maybe you know, fill in the blank. Life is hard. It could be the death of a loved one. What is it that has made your life hard? God allows difficult things in our life so that our faith will be tested. And if we come through the test with our faith secure, with the fruit of the Spirit as the result of the testing, then we can have confidence that we will be crowned with the crown of life, that ours is the inheritance that will be given to us. There's nothing greater uh, or no greater tragedy than when someone is tested and they come up wanting when there's no evidence of true faith at the end of it, and that all that that difficult circumstance has done has betrayed that there was no saving faith to begin with. There was no enduring faith there, so that when it was put to the test, it evaporated. When life is hard, when your life is put to the test, will you come out on the other side? Surely God doesn't discipline us. I mean, you think about what God did to those Israelites in the wilderness. He struck them dead. He, that man broke the Sabbath, stoned him to death. That person is insubordinate. The earth is going to swallow him up. Well, God's not sending fires to consume us. He's not swallowing us up. In fact, it would be sin for us to stone anyone in the church. So that clearly has changed. God doesn't discipline us anymore, does he? Well, in fact, in Hebrews 12, we're told that, of course God disciplines us. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. No, do not be weary when he reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. For the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God doesn't test or discipline us in the same way anymore, but he does discipline us, sometimes through circumstances, sometimes through the careful word of a friend, sometimes through the words and actions of your spouse, sometimes by the elders of the church. When God disciplines you, how will you receive the discipline? Nobody wants to be disciplined, but when a brother or sister, an elder or a husband or a wife or a father or a mother brings the discipline of God against you, will you humble yourself? Will you listen? Will you persevere through it? Or will you look for another church 
another wife, another family, another city? Will you flee? Or will you stay? The book of Numbers looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? Grumblings, deadly fires, plagues, stonings, leprosy, sinkholes, holy fire, poisonous snakes. I think we could be forgiven if we asked the question, does God even love these people? And I think I, I've heard a few people over my time teaching the Old Testament says, well, the God of the Old Testament is nothing like the God I love. The God of the Old Testament is nothing like the God I worship. He's precisely the same God. We worship the God of the Old Testament. Our hope is in the God of the Old Testament. What about our own lives? When we are going through things in our lives, when we open the Bible, we, do we go to the book of Numbers and say, I want to understand what's going on in my life by reflecting in on the fact that like Israel, I'm walking through the wilderness and maybe I can make sense of some of the hard things in my life if I just can grapple with and make sense of the difficult things in Israel's life in the wilderness. Now, of course, unlike Israel, our, God does not punish our sin the way he did in the book of Numbers. And the reason for this is the gospel, that Jesus has punished Jesus Christ with death. So he will never again punish any of us with death. Nevertheless, life is hard. And God uses the difficult times in our life to humble, test, and discipline us. But we too can wonder at times when life is really hard. Does God even love us? God, if you loved me, my life wouldn't be this hard. Fortunately, the book of Numbers is not all about humbling and testing and disciplining. While most of the book is focused in on the challenges in the camp, uh, we see from one perspective the, the grumbling and the disobedience, the faithlessness, the rebellion of the people that required God's discipline in the camp, within the family. The book of Numbers also shows us God's deep love for his people, his enduring protection of his people, and his blessing. In fact, there are these difficult chapters to understand if you don't look at it through this lens near the end of the book, from Numbers 22 to 24, and I'm not going to read them for you either today, but I'll reference them for you. And you might know about this man named Balaam. The Moabite king named Balak saw these two million people coming through his land and he saw that he had defeated, they had defeated some other people and, and were merciless against them. So Balak, rather than humbling himself and going to Moses and saying, please have mercy on me and go through my land, he found Balaam and he said, Balaam, I will make you rich if you curse these people. So four times... In Numbers 23, 7 to 12. And in Numbers 23, 18 to 24. And in Numbers 24, 2 to 9. And in Numbers 24, 15 to 19. Four times Balaam wanted to curse God's people on behalf of Balak. He wanted to get rich. It's not that 
obvious if you just read those texts that that was his desire. But there are many other places in the Bible that affirm that Balaam wanted to curse God's people. But God wouldn't let him. He opened his mouth to utter a curse against Israel. But God wouldn't let him utter a curse. And out of Balaam's mouth did not come curses, but blessings. And even in the fourth blessing, which was supposed to be a curse, Balaam said, and from this people will come a mighty king who will be the king of all people. And here's the point for us. If you were in the Israelite camp, you would look around and you say, does God even love me? I am pretty ticked at God for making us wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. I don't like my food. I'm not getting enough to drink. I miss the delicious nature of slavery in Egypt. And discipline upon discipline upon discipline. And there's this rough relationship unfolding in the camp. But if you zoom out, God loves these people. And there are those on the outside wishing to bring down curses on these people. And God says, no. Emphatically, no. That's my people. They will not be cursed. They will be blessed. That's what I want all of us to know. Even while we're in the wilderness of this life. Even when life seems hard. Even when you're feeling crushed even when you're barely keeping your head above water, when the discipline of God sits heavy on you, when you think there's no more, I can't take any more, I'll break. Zoom out. Look at your life from a wide-angle lens and know that the discipline is for a time for your good. God loves you. God will provide everything that you need in the wilderness even in the midst of trials, humiliation, and discipline. He will give you everything you need. And if you humble yourself, if the tested genuineness of your faith rings true, then the discipline of God will yield an eternal harvest and you will receive the crown of life. And one day the Lord Jesus will come and he will lead you into a new creation. So the question is, what is more precious? What is more valuable to you today? Houses, health, careers, prosperity, longevity, or the discipline of the Lord that will bring you into a new creation? I plead with you, Humble yourselves. Be satisfied with Christ. Prepare yourself to come into the promised land. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He will not permit the enemy to have you or to curse you. He will not bring a, a single eternal evil against you. For you are His if you have made him yours, you are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in the eyes of God, that is precious. 
in his sight. Let's pray. Oh God, this is a hard sermon in so many ways because it hits us all. Which one of us is satisfied supremely with Christ? God have mercy. I confess that though I want it to be true of me in practice so often because of the weakness of my flesh, Jesus Christ is not enough. I'm not satisfied. If you were to ask me to walk in the steps of Job, I don't know that I could stand. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. Humble us. Test us. Refine us so we will be pure gold. Would your discipline have its proper effect? That we would be ready when Christ returns to come into the land that you have promised. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.